0: Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be here with you, Um, and thanks to Jesse uh, for leading music on short notice. Uh, Many of you know um, our normal uh, music uh, leader. Uh, He's on staff with us, Matt Curl. Uh, He's in Bend uh, with his parents, with his dad, who's fighting a fairly aggressive cancer. So Jesse stepped in at the last minute so that Matt could be there. So um, continue to pray for Matt and the Curl family. They're going through a a very difficult um, time, so this is our gospel reading, and it 's from galatians and we 're continuing our study in galatians and This is one of those passages that um, you wish as a pastor you could skip because it's very complex and it's very sophisticated and very complicated and frankly it's very difficult to really bring out the truth behind this text and to explain it well and to not sort of exist up here in the esoteric realm but to bring it down to um, make it practical that we can all benefit from. Uh, there's so much going on, even in just the first three verses, you could do a number of sermons. So we are going to do two sermons on uh, these pa- this passage uh, this morning and then uh, one next week. So follow along with me. This is our gospel reading, Galatians 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh... They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a picture that my parents have. My parents are here this morning. Welcome to them. But this picture is of me in my early teens, and apparently it's after a shopping trip that we uh, had taken. And I'm in the front yard, and we're headed, I'm about to head to school, and I guess it was my mom who snapped a picture of me in my brand-new red-and-white Coca-Cola rugby shirt. Do you remember these, children of the 80s? Coca-Cola rugby shirt. And along with that red-and-white shirt, I had a pair of very large red-and-white high-top Reeboks. So I'm standing profile in this picture, and I look like an enormous red-and-white L. Because Why? My feet are huge and my body, not so much. And this is not unusual for teenagers, 13-year-olds who are 5'5 and wear size 13 shoes. And what do people say? Well, it's okay, he'll grow into them. Well, he better. They show what size they're going to be by the size of their hands and their feet. They have, you know, a little peach fuzz. They're lanky. They have a creaky voice. They have all these signs of immaturity but also they have signs of what they will be. These gigantic hands and gigantic feet show that the future is already present in their bodies. They're going to grow into these things. It will happen. It's in their chromosomes. It's in their DNA. Well, Paul is telling us here, the Apostle Paul who's writing Galatians, to take a look at your life. Take a look at at your community, your church community, that there are forces at work, very strong forces that are aligned against you and against your maturity and against your growth. Like gravity working against a young body, these spiritual forces are working against your growth. There's the flesh. That is the resistance to God. That is everything that is working against the power of the Spirit, But just as we know that ultimately genes beat gravity, right? The child grows into what he or she should be, what his or her DNA dictates. So the Spirit slowly but surely pushes against the power of the flesh and brings about the presence and life of God as I said, this is a very complicated and difficult passage, and I want to look at it this morning in two pairs of contrast. We're going to look at two powers and then two lists, and then next week we're going to look at two communities. And as we get started, let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, I pray that my words would be Your words. Would You inhabit them, Holy Spirit? Meet us. Charge us with Your presence. Electrify us with your grace. Some of us here, all is all we could do this morning, just to get out of bed and to make it to church. We suffer with depression or anxiety, moral failure, embarrassment, or hurt, but we can't live without your grace. And so we're here, Lord. Would you pour it out? Others are here, just going through the motions. Life keeps marching along, just fine, and this is part of the routine. Would you startle us? Would you surprise us, Lord? Wake us from our slumbers. Let us come to the conclusion that this is everything or this is nothing. Maybe we're here looking for answers. Maybe we've almost given up hope in finding meaning. Anything that's truly significant, truly fulfilling, would you let us encounter you? Father, make this complicated text relevant, applicable, Make it understandable, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first of all, two powers, two powers. Paul is helping the churches in Galatia, and he's helping us to pull back the curtain of our lives and, in fact, of our world to see what is really going on. That our victories and our failures, our sin and our growth are taking place on a larger stage than just our individual lives. He says in verse 16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another. And we read this, and even if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, we've got to understand and recognize that duality because we experience it in our everyday lives, and we see it in our world, this conflict between two competing interests, between good and evil, if you will. This conflict between flesh and spirit does have implications for our daily lives, And it does describe the internal conflicts that we feel, but that's not the immediate context that Paul is talking about here, because flesh in this passage, and whenever you see it in Scripture, flesh is not your body. It's not your individual body, but it's a realm. It's a realm of opposition to God. It's everything in our world that is stacked against and in conflict with God, or in this case, the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is not your internal Spirit. It's capitalized here. The Spirit here is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. These two powers, these two forces are in conflict with one another. He's talking about a cosmic battle that is going on, that is playing out above you and around you and, yes, inside of you. Now, why is this here? Why is it important for us to get this? These churches that Paul had founded had accepted this great news that in Jesus, in his life and his death and his resurrection, that they could have new life, that they could have salvation, that they could be rescued, that all of their sin and all of their guilt and all of their self-righteousness had been done away with forever, and that they could have an intimate relationship with God himself. But you see, these infiltrators, these agitators, what we've been calling these false teachers, have come into these churches and said, well, yeah, that's, that's sort of right. That's great, Galatians. But every community has got to have its rules. Every community has got to have its law, its systems, its structures, or otherwise, everything's going to go off the rails. Oh, and by the way, conveniently, we have the law. And this is the Hebrew law the law, whereby we can order our lives and communities and by which, through which, we can battle the flesh. You see, that's the conflict they saw, law against flesh, not spirit against flesh. And so Paul says, not so fast. Wait a minute. Verse 16 is a direct confrontation and challenge to those teachers, it says, so I say, as if it's directly connected to what came first, but it's probably best rendered, but I say. Normally, the Greek underlying word is but. It's a contrast, but I say. What he's saying is you've heard these teachers say, walk by the law and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the flesh. He's telling these churches that he planted and that he loves, and he's writing to them and saying, don't you get it? Don't you understand what is stacked against you? We're not dealing simply with bodily desires and sensuality here. It's not just your individual inclinations towards selfishness and sensuality. This is cosmic warfare. Don't you get it? Rule following and law abidance is like bringing a knife to a gunfight. You don't understand the gravity of the situation. Now, if you're following me so far, I hope hope so, this next thing should shock you. It really should. He's trying to tell us and tell the Galatians that the law is inadequate to defeat the flesh. Only the Spirit can do that. But he goes way beyond that in verse 18. Were you listening? But if you are led by the Spirit you are not under the flesh. Is that what he says? No. That's what we expect him to say. If you're under the Spirit, you're not under the flesh. But Paul throws us a curveball here. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This goes against every instinct we have about religion and what it means to follow God. And perhaps it goes against your impressions of what Christianity is all about. You see, Christianity doesn't conscript you to a new or different set of rules, but it sets you free from rule following altogether. And this is because, as a little aside, this is because the law and the flesh, hear this, the law and the flesh can be secret allies. The law is and rule-following can actually mask our need for true redemption. Our egos will always prefer an economy of merit over grace. Our egos will always prefer an economy of moral achievement over unearned love, where we have to give up control, where we can't look at the mess we've made of our lives and say, I can fix that. I got it under control. What happens when you blow it on a project at work? When your boss comes into your office and said, you know, the work you did wasn't quite up to snuff. And what do you immediately want to say? Okay, but I'll fix it, and I'll do better next time. And then the boss says, well, we're going to take it from here that hurts, right? That's terrible feeling because why? You have to give up control over the outcome of that project, and you have to give up control over other people's opinions. You want to fix it. Same with parenting. You get angry with your kids, and you blow it with them, and you think, well, the rest of the day, I'm going to mind my P's and Q's. I'm going to be really loving towards the kids, and I'm going to do better next time. You're driving, and you hear a horn. Blow nearby, and you think, Well, that can't be towards me. Who would dare (laughs) honk at me? I'm doing fine. I got this. Well, remember, we read in the gospel reading Jesus's run ins with the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the most outwardly holy people that you could find, these were the good guys. And what does Jesus say? Unless your holiness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What does this mean? It means that there is an early stage holiness that looks like the real thing but isn't. There's a religion of false humility and false sacrifice that can fool many people. What do I mean by this? It's when we say, I'm going to sacrifice myself by following the rules. I'm going to sacrifice myself by being a good person. It's not the funnest life, but then I get to go to heaven. I'm going to sacrifice by keeping my nose clean, by following the rules, by doing my religious devotions. But you see what's going on there is what we're doing is we're really just trying to keep the moral high ground so that we can look down our nose at other people. And we're avoiding true change. We're avoiding deep repentance. This fools most people. The scribes and the Pharisees had everyone fooled, and Jesus came and put His finger in their chest and said, you don't get it. It's bogus religion. And that's why it's been said that true, lo- true holiness in most churches is in the basement. What happens in the basement of many vacant churches? Who meets there? That's where AA often meets, right? Right? Hello, I'm Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. What's going on there? You see, the posturing is over. The pretending is over. The self-righteousness is over. Everyone in that room, if they're honest, is equally conquered, and they know that their only hope comes from something beyond themselves. It's the cry of someone who's given up hope of achieving freedom Unless someone else steps in, they call it a higher power. We call it the Spirit. Unless the Spirit comes in. And that's what Paul is telling the Galatians give up your self salvation strategies, give up your pretense, give up your false holiness, because they're no match for the flesh. Instead, adopt the position of a beggar, a petitioner, a radical dependent. That's Christianity. That's the core. But, man, it's hard to get there, right? As we said in the confession, that's uncomfortable. None of us like to get there. We certainly don't want to stay there. And so what we do instead is we just stay at that early stage holiness. We're content to show up on Sunday. We maybe write a few checks to some good causes. We give to our church. We read some theology books. But our lives look just as consumeristic And competitive and anxious and isolated and image conscious as everyone else outside the church. And the world is right to critique us. Where are you marshaling your resources to say, I got this? I got it under control. I can fix this. Maybe I'm not where I need to be, but I'm not like that person. I'm sorry, this is a very meddling sermon, isn't it? Some One of you likes to come up to me afterwards and say, Pastor, that was a very meddling sermon. But I am your pastor, and I'm supposed to tell you hard stuff, and this is directed to me too. It meddles in my own life. I'm right there with you, and I've been at this long enough to know the game and to know how it's played, and I can play the game as well as anyone. Okay, one more thing under the two powers before we move on to one shorter point, I promise. Again, verse 17, "...for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want." I said a minute ago, Christianity is the end to rule following, but what does Paul say here? You're not to do whatever you want. In other words, he's not leaving us without any moral guidance. And this little passage has puzzled interpreters because this is Paul's letter of freedom. And then he's saying, no, you can't do whatever you want. Well, the image of warfare helps. Remember the cause of World War I? Franz Ferdinand is shot, assassinated, and all of a sudden you had all of these countries who were at peace just a few moments ago now aligned against one another. And these countries, they may have wanted to stay neutral, but because of his death, all of these pacts and all of these alliances kicked into gear, and all of a sudden you've got global warfare. Whether you wanted it or not, you are now getting shot at. By virtue of your alignment in this pact, this alliance, you are now in war. You are now getting shot at. And if you're a Christian this morning, you've aligned yourself with, your, with the story of Jesus. And you're caught up, whether you like it or not, in a huge conflict, in cosmic warfare, and you can't be neutral. You can't do whatever you want. Freedom isn't absolute because your relationship with Jesus sets you against the flesh and dictates and defines the moral choices that you can and should make. And that leads us to the two lists. So we got through three verses there. (laughs) got a whole lot more to do, but we're going to do a really short point and leave some for next week. Two lists. Now, just as the flesh versus the spirit conflict is something taking place above us and beyond us, but it does implicate us, so these lists aren't exactly lists of vices and virtues that we are to pursue individually. They're certainly suggestive of the type of life that a Christian is to pursue, but Paul is after something else here. If he's simply telling us how to live, then this would be a pretty big contradiction to what he just told us, that you're not under law. Wouldn't it be weird to say that and then give us a list of rules to keep? Well, this is not a list, first of all, of commanded behaviors, but these are marks of the Spirit. It's not a list, first of all, commanded behaviors, but it's marks of the Spirit being present in a life and in a community. All of the verbs here are indicative. They're not imperatives. They're this is what will be and is, not what should be, that you should be, these things. In other words, he's not saying you should do them, but you will do them. And this should be very liberating, Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whatever you're struggling with, this should be very liberating because he's saying you will do these things if you are in Christ. If the Spirit is present in you, He is at work in your life. Back to verse 16, did you catch this? So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not moral guidance. That's a promise. That is a promise. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or more literally, you will not fully carry out. You will not bring to completion. The Greek word is teleo. That is something about completing something. That is about our goal and completing. More literally, you will not carry out or bring to completion Now, he's not promising us here that you'll never fall or fail, that the first list will never represent you, and the second list will always be who you are. He's not saying that you will never fall or fail, but that you will not ultimately fulfill the desires of the flesh. And if at times you fall into the patterns of list one or you fail to embody list two, you're not kicked out of the kingdom. You're simply not living according to your DNA. He's not laying out remember who he's writing to. He's writing to people in a church who are Christian, and he's not laying out two paths that are equally available to them. On the contrary, he's saying to the Galatians and saying to in town to more steadily be who you are. When you fail. It's that you've got these really big feet that you haven't grown into yet. You've got these gigantic hands that predict your future, but you haven't grown fully into them yet. In your failure, don't lose heart because the Spirit is in you, and He's at work, and you will not ultimately fulfill the desires of the flesh. Okay, got a lot more to say, and as I was writing this sermon this week, I was approaching the number of words that I normally have for two sermons, and so I started panicking. But I remembered, that's why months ago, back in August, when I was writing the outline, I decided to do two sermons on this passage, so I don't have to tell you everything. We're going to look at the same passage next week from a little bit different angle. So let me, let me end with this. Verse 22, what is the first fruit, what is the first mark of the Spirit's presence? but the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't have. They had holiness, they had theology, but they didn't have love. Theology, you see, right belief can be an abstraction. We can use theology to claim the moral high ground without actually doing anything, without actually changing deep in who we are. But love isn't that way. And that's why it's always the test of true faith. And that's why it's here, number one. The number one mark of the Spirit, love. Because it can't be put into just formulas or mere words. It can't be systematized. But it has to do with how we situate ourselves in life and in our world and how we treat others and how we respond to God's initiative. Love is is the realm that ferrets out our true religion, our operative truth. How you do life is your real truth. It's your final truth, not what ideas you believe in your head. And that's why Jesus didn't come just to tell us things. He didn't come just to teach us things, but He also showed us. He demonstrated love. He was marked by the Spirit in that He went around loving others more than his own security and his own comfort. He embodied and demonstrated love by becoming a slave to your need and my need. He demonstrated love by saying, my life for yours. Whatever it takes, I will give it to you so that you can be safe. I will step into danger to make you safe. Friends, the way to avoid giving the flesh a base of operations in our personal lives and in this community is by mimicking that sort of love. He, in His perfect freedom, gave up His life to win ours. And this, and this alone is the antidote to fleshly rivalry. That is the self-emptying love of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, as we continue to think about this, I pray that we would wrestle with it, and I pray that at the end of the day, what we would see more and more is how you embodied list too, that you came to earth full of love, full of grace, full of compassion, ready to step into our shoes, ready to take on our danger and our sin and our unrighteousness so that we could be set free Lord, I pray that we would live into that freedom as we confess our faith and as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.